I'll turn on my microphone. It helps, doesn't it? If you have your Bible with you, I invite you to turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 17, if you're using a pew Bible, it's on page 1045. If you're a guest with us, we've been working through this section in Matthew's Gospel. We've come to Matthew chapter 17, and we're going to begin reading in verse 14 this morning. And I want to speak for a few minutes on this subject, a faithless and twisted generation. Matthew chapter 17, beginning in verse 14. And this is what the Word of God says. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon. And it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. And then in your footnotes, you'll have verse 21 that says, but this kind never comes out except by prayer and fasting. A mountaintop experience is often followed by a discouraging valley. And so it is here in Matthew chapter 17. As Peter, James, and John descend the mountain with Jesus... The scene in Matthew's gospel shifts from one extreme to another. It turns from the glory of God in Christ on the mountain to the pain and suffering of the world at the foot of the mountain. From the ecstasy of heavenly brilliance, Jesus and his three disciples descend into the misery of earthly suffering. Here in this passage, we see the God who stooped to become a man. The one who identified with us in our suffering in order to bring us salvation from our sin. Descending from the mountain of transfiguration, Jesus and his disciples walk into the valley of a demon-infested world. And they encounter a great crowd that is full of turmoil and unbelief. And at the center of all of this commotion is a father seeking healing for a son who suffers terribly, and the nine remaining disciples of Jesus who failed to heal the boy. Matthew chapter 17 and verse 14 marks the beginning of a crucial period of instruction for Jesus and his 12 disciples. 
And this instruction will continue all the way through Matthew chapter 20. Having just given him them the revelation of his person of, as king and of his program of his kingdom, Jesus now gives his disciples in these chapters the principles of what it would mean to live and minister as a part of his kingdom. And here in this passage, in the midst of a faithless and twisted generation, Jesus teaches his disciples and us the foundational principle of faith. A principle that is at the root and the heart of living for God and faithfully serving Him in the midst of our own faithless and twisted generation. A world that is cursed by sin. And so look with me in the text as I break this story into three major sections. As Jesus teaches His disciples and us, this principle of faith. In verses 14 to 16, we see the Father's request. Matthew says, And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him, and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly, for he often falls into the fire, and often into the water, and I brought him to your disciples, and they could not heal him. In Luke chapter 9, in verse 37, Luke tells us in his account of this passage that on the next day when Jesus, along with Peter, James, and John, had come down from the mountain of transfiguration, a great crowd met Jesus. In his gospel account, in Mark chapter 9, in verse 14, Mark says, that when Jesus, along with Peter, James, and John, came to the other disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And if you'll recall, the scribes were the Jewish legal experts. And here in this account, they were engaged in an argument with the nine disciples of Jesus who did not accompany him up the mountain. Mark goes on to say in chapter 9 and verse 15 that immediately all the crowd, when they saw Jesus, were greatly amazed and they ran up to Jesus and they greeted him. And then in Mark 9, 16, Jesus asks the crowd simply, what are you arguing about with my disciples? And in that moment, when Jesus asked that question of the crowd, Matthew says in verse 14 that a man came out from among the crowd to Jesus and he knelt before him. Now notice carefully in verse 14 of Matthew 17, the father's posture. He came out from among the crowd and he knelt before Jesus. Here is a desperate man, a discouraged father bowing before the Lord Jesus. And in verse 15, Matthew says that this father says to Jesus, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And you'll notice not only the father's posture, you'll notice his prayer. It was a simple prayer. 
It was a cry of desperation. Lord, have mercy. And both the father's posture and his prayer testified to the fact that this man knew that there was something different about Jesus. At the very least, this man recognized Jesus as a man of God who was endowed with the divine power to heal and to restore. And though the father may not have realized it at the time, he was about to bring his only beloved son into the very presence of God the Father's only beloved son. And Matthew says that this father cried out, Lord, have mercy, because in verse 15, he said that his son was an epileptic. The Greek word that is used here is used to describe what we understand in our culture as various nervous disorders that cause convulsions. It literally, literally translates being moonstruck. And it was an expression that was used in ancient days of the belief that mental illness and madness was caused by the changing seasons of the moon. But when you study Mark's gospel and Luke's gospel, you find that this boy's condition had nothing to do with the seasons of the moon. This boy's condition had everything to do with being possessed by a demon. Mark chapter 9 and verse 17, Mark says, and someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit a demon that makes him mute. Luke chapter 9, verses 38 and 39, Luke says, And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit, a demon, seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. Matthew is much more succinct in his description of the boy's condition. You'll notice in verse 15, he simply states, My son suffers terribly, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And in those days, the landscape of the culture was full of open fires and open bodies of water, such as pools or wells. Because this boy had often fallen into a fire, his body had to have been scarred and marred from the flames, and it possibly resulted in being ostracized from society. And because he often fell in bodies of water, the boy could never be left alone. His father or a family member or somebody close to the boy had to constantly be by his side, never knowing when a seizure would take place and cause him to fall into the water and potentially drown. When you study Luke's account in Luke 9, 39, he gives us more insight. This is what he says happens to the boy because of the demon. He says a spirit seizes him and suddenly he cries out and it convulses him so that he foams at his mouth and it shatters him and it will hardly leave him. Mark adds an even deeper layer of description in Mark chapter 9, verses 17 and 18. And he says, he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it 
throws him down and he foams and he grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. And even with these three descriptions from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, isn't it difficult to fully grasp the condition and the suffering of this little boy and his father? I love how Matthew summarizes the boy's condition. He suffers terribly. He suffers terribly. And this violent suffering is a tragic reminder of the pain of what it means to live in a world that is cursed by sin. And in his deep anguish, in his desperate state, this father separates himself from the crowd and from the arguing and from the voices, and he bows down before the Lord Jesus. And the Bible says he cries out, Lord, have mercy, have compassion, have sympathy for my condition. And Matthew tells us in verse 16, if you look at the text, why this father knelt before Jesus and cried out for mercy. Because he had already approached the other nine disciples and they could not heal this boy. Mark says that the father said to Jesus that I went to your disciples and asked them, but they could not heal him. Luke says that the father says to Jesus, I begged your disciples to heal my son, and they could not. Notice the text. They. That's right. All nine of Jesus' disciples tried to heal this boy, and all nine of them failed. And you say, if you're following along carefully in the text, what happened? How could all nine of them fail? I mean, I could see one of them having a bad day and being off of their game, but all nine of them at the same time? And what's even more fascinating, about a year before this, in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus commissioned all 12 of his disciples to go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And they were to proclaim the kingdom of God. And Jesus in Matthew chapter 10 gave them the authority to heal the sick, to raise the dead, to cleanse the lepers, and to cast out demons. And in the other gospel accounts, they actually say that the disciples came back to Jesus and spoke of their success of their healing ministry. And yet, here in Matthew chapter 17, they failed. Now let's be clear this morning. Their failure wasn't due to the absence of Jesus because in all of their previous healing ministry, Jesus was not present with them. This had nothing to do about Jesus being with them. They still had Jesus' promise, and they still had Jesus' power, and yet they could not heal the boy. And so the father did what any desperate, discouraged father would do. He went to Jesus 
and he cried out for mercy. And I wonder this morning if there's any of us in this room who could relate to this desperate father. Perhaps you know what it means to suffer terribly. Perhaps you or someone close to you is suffering terribly this morning. Or maybe you find yourself here this morning so discouraged by the pressures and the pain and the disappointments of life that you are defeated in the very depths of your soul. Well, the question for you this morning is, what do you do with your discouraged soul and your defeated spirit? Do you, like this father, kneel before the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, the one who knows better than any of us what it means to suffer terribly? And do you find yourself crying out in desperation and dependence for divine mercy? Because, friends, that's the answer. That's the answer to terrible suffering. The divine mercy that flows from the Lord Jesus Christ who suffered for you on the cross. The prophet Jeremiah understood this. There's a whole book in your Bible of Jeremiah's lament and of his cry. And in the midst of his lament and his cry of desperation and his groaning before God, he focuses on the same thing that this discouraged, desperate father focuses on. The mercy of God. And you know these verses, you've heard them. You may even have them as a plaque somewhere in your house. But the question isn't, are the verses on a plaque in your house? The question is, are the verses written on your heart and your soul? And this is what he laments and cries out in Lamentations chapter 3, verses 21 to 24. Listen to this, Christian. Listen to this, church. There is comfort and encouragement and hope in the midst of a faithless, twisted, suffering generation in these verses. But this I call to mind. And isn't that the key? When you're suffering terribly, it's what you call to your memory. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. Why does he have hope? Because he's reminded himself of the truth. Not of his suffering, of the truth about his suffering. And what is the truth? You ready? The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. He got it. He understood it. He understood that there was fresh mercy for every day of suffering and hardship and trial and toil. That you don't understand suffering terribly by looking at the long view. You understand suffering terribly by looking at the short view, the daily view, the new mercy view. He understood it so much. Do you know what he said next? Great 
is your faithfulness, God. Because tomorrow, when I wake up suffering terribly, new mercy for that suffering. New strength, new grace, because you're steadfast in your love for me. But he's not finished. Do you know how he ends it? The Lord is my portion. It's personal to him. God has become real. His mercy is real in his life. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I'll hope in him. The father got it. He understood in the midst of a faithless and twisted generation that the answer for terrible suffering is new divine mercy flowing from the steadfast love of the Lord Jesus Christ every single morning when you wake up. Do you get it? Do you say those things to your soul? Second, I want you to see in verses 17 and 18 the frustrated rebuke. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. If there's ever a passage of of Scripture that highlights for you the humanity of Jesus, and in particular, Jesus being frustrated, it's this one. And some of you are thinking right now, wait a minute, the pastor's speaking heresy. Jesus frustrated? Well, you look at the text. You read it. You think about it for a minute. And you tell me whether or not Jesus is frustrated. Frederick Dale Bruner said, Jesus has just shone and glowed. And now at the foot of the mountain, he moans and he groans. We've just seen his deity on the mountain. And now we see his humanity at the foot of the mountain. Mark helps us understand Jesus' frustration. In Mark chapter 9, verses 21 to 24, Mark records in great detail the conversation that Jesus had with this father. And this is what Mark records. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. Now listen to what the father says next. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Did you hear it? If you can do anything, have mercy on us. You know what Jesus' response was? Listen, verse 23. And Jesus said to him, and in your Bible, in Mark 9, 23, there is an exclamation point. And so do you know how Jesus said it? Here's what he said. If you can, if you can, who in the world do you think you're talking to? If? If I'm the one that spoke everything into existence, if, are you serious? And then he says, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately, Mark says, immediately, 
The father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Can't you relate to that, Dad? Sure you can. You've been there a thousand times. I've been there a thousand times. But don't miss the point of the conversation. Matthew skips all of the detail and he gives us the point. You say, well, what's the point, Pastor? It's what Matthew records that Jesus says next in verse 17. Oh, faithless and twisted generation. Do you see it? Jesus, if you can have mercy, if you can, anything's possible if you'll believe. Oh, Jesus, I believe. Help my unbelief. What a faithless, twisted generation. Do you feel the weight of his words? Do you feel his frustration in that moment? When he says faithless, he's referring to the fact that they do not trust in God. That they're not committed to God and the ways of God. And when he says twisted, it literally means that they're twisting and bending things out of shape. The language is that of a piece of pottery. And the potter not doing a correct job on it. And he's moving it and forming it carelessly. And he misshapes it and then he throws it into the fire. It's twisted. It's corrupt. It's perverted. It's the same language, faithless and twisted generation, that Moses used in Deuteronomy chapter 32 to describe Israel and their response to God. And listen to what happened in Deuteronomy chapter 31. God goes to Moses and he says, Moses, I want you to write a song and I want you to teach the people of Israel this song. And the song that I want you to write must describe how faithless and perverse they will be when I lead them into the promised land. And once you've written the song, I want you to teach it to them so that they all know it. And do you know what was at the heart of the song repeated over and over? In Deuteronomy chapter 32, it's repeated in verse 5. It's repeated again in verse 20. It's the theme of the whole song that Moses wrote. That they're faithless and they're twisted. And Jesus was grieved. He was grieved by the blindness, the faithlessness, and the perversion, listen, of the multitudes, the disciples, and this father. He was grieved and frustrated by their lack of belief. And notice how he described him in verse 17. It's a whole generation of them. If you've been following along in Matthew's gospel, if you've read ahead to see what's coming next, here's what you'll find out. You don't want to be included in the faithless and twisted generation that Matthew talks about. Jesus has already given warnings to this faithless and twisted generation, and he'll give warnings at the very end of the gospel of the judgment that is going to come upon them because they lack faith, and because they're corrupt. And they lack faith and they're corrupt because they don't look to God. And they don't trust in God's Son, Jesus Christ.
They're faithless and they're twisted morally. And so Jesus, do you see in the text what he does? After he makes this bold statement, he asks two questions. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? I've been with you for almost three years, pouring my life into you. You crowds, you've been following me everywhere. You've seen miracle after miracle after miracle. You've seen sign after sign after sign. And yet you still have the audacity to come to me and say, show us a sign and prove to us you're the son of God. You're faithless. And you disciples... I've poured my life into you. You've seen me pray. I've taught you to pray. You've been a first-hand witness of my ministry and my life. You're faithless. And you, scribes, you're twisted. You're corrupt. You're distorting everything to deceive the people. How much longer do I have to stay with you? Isn't three years enough? Haven't you seen it by now? When will you ever get it? That's what I think he was saying. You're faithless. So what does he do? He does what any merciful God will do to those who humble themselves before him. The end of verse 17 and verse 18, Jesus says, do you see in the new text? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. And friends, the good news about this account in these verses is that this is a reminder that Jesus has the power to heal. He has the power to deliver. He has the power to save. And he has the power to meet the deepest needs of our lives. And he did it right here for this father and this boy. And you'll notice how Matthew describes the events when Jesus rebuked this demon, he had no choice but to leave the boy. Do you know what I find fascinating about all of this? Luke and Mark record that the demon made one last ditch effort to control and destroy this boy. In Luke chapter 9 and verse 42, Luke says, And while he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit, and he healed the boy, and he gave him back to his father. Isn't that good? He gave him back to his father. Mark chapter 9 and verse 20, And they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground, and he rolled about, and he was foaming at the mouth. And then in verses 25 to 27, Mark says, And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, he lifted him up, and he rose. And that's what happened. When you're touched by the Lord Jesus Christ, you rise from the grave. And Matthew says, as soon as this demon was gone, the boy was healed instantly. Think of it, friends. This boy, he got to go play with all the other boys. He got to be a part of society again. He never again had to worry about walking by an open fire. 
He never again had to worry about water. He could go swimming with all of his friends and never, ever have to worry about it. He never foamed at the mouth anymore. He never grinded his teeth anymore. He was healed. Do you know what Luke says when all this happened? Oh, listen to this. This is good. This is worth your drive this morning. This is it. Luke says, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. He was healed instantly. And the crowd, and the disciples, and the scribes, and the father, and probably the boy himself, they were in awe of the majesty of God. You say, well, what's the big deal about that? Oh, well, you've missed it. And that's what I'm here for. It's my job to help you not miss it. And so you're not going to miss this. So if you zone out, that's your own fault. I'm doing my part. you got to do yours. The word majesty that Luke uses at the end of his count in Luke chapter 9 is the same word that Peter uses in 2 Peter chapter 1 when he describes what he witnessed on the Mount of Transfiguration when he saw the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, a glimpse of that glory that Jesus will display when he comes again to judge the world and rule the nations. And Peter said it was majesty. And Luke says, in the midst of this miracle of the healing of the boy, the majesty of God was on display. Have you figured it out yet? Do you know what the crowd saw? Do you know what the disciples saw? Do you know what that father and that boy saw? They saw what Peter, James, and John saw on the mountain. They saw before their very eyes the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they believed. What about you? Do you believe? Have you seen the glory of Christ? Or are you a part of the faithless and twisted generation that refuses to believe? that refuses to bow before Jesus, the generation that will do it their own way. Some of you may be here today saying, oh, pastor, if I was in that story, if I could see what they saw, I'd believe, I'd believe. Well, friends, if that's you, I've got a verse for you this morning. It's 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 19. It's the very next verse that Peter writes after he describes what he saw on the Mount of Transfiguration when the glory of Christ was displayed. And here's what Peter said. Listen carefully. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention. It's a lamp shining in a dark place. Do you know what he's talking about? Do you see what you have in your lap? Do you see what I've been speaking out of for these last few minutes? Peter says that the Bible is a more sure word than what he saw 
on the mountain when he saw the glory of Christ before him. So you don't need an experience. You've got the testimony right in your lap this morning. And it's more sure, more certain than what Peter saw with his own eyes. And listen to what Peter said. You would do well to pay attention to what it says. Because it's a light that's shining in the darkness of a faithless and twisted generation. You don't need another experience. You need to be confronted with the very word of God. And you need to bow in submission to it. That's the certain word. Well, we see the father's request. We see the frustrated rebuke. I'm going to have to talk really fast about the faithlessness revealed. Beginning in verse 19. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, You will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, And it will move, And nothing will be impossible for you. The disciples' failure to heal the boy drove them to Jesus, and that's just what our failure should do, isn't it, friends? Drive us to Jesus. Matthew says they went to him privately, and they asked him why they were unable to cast out the demon and why he was able to accomplish it. And in verse 20, look at the text, Jesus answers their question. He says, because of your little faith, Now, just so we're on the same page, faith is a disposition of trust in God that looks to him and him alone to intervene and work. It's a disposition of trust that looks to God and God alone to intervene and to work. And notice what the text says. The disciples didn't fail because they didn't have faith. It doesn't say that. They had faith or they wouldn't have tried to cast the demon out to begin with. They failed because their faith was small. This phrase, this idea, this concept, little faith, it's all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. It first appears in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus warns his disciples against anxiety over earthly needs. Next, it appears when Jesus rebukes his disciples for the fear of the storm when they were in the boat with him. Jesus uses it next to rebuke Peter when Peter started to drown when he was walking on the sea towards Jesus. And in Matthew chapter 14, it was used by Jesus to rebuke the disciples for their foolish worry about bread when he warned them of the leaven of the scribes and the Pharisees. So what is little faith? Little faith points to a weakness or a failure in our faith. It's a result of allowing other things to take our faith and our focus off the power of Christ. All these examples of little faith in the Gospel of Matthew illustrate that little faith is a kind of faith that believes when God has already made the provision. Here's what I mean by that. Listen carefully. When things were going well with the disciples and everything seemed under control, they found it easy to trust Jesus. But as soon as their circumstances became uncertain, 
or threatening, their faith weakened and their faith withered. Listen, when the crisis came, the disciples were unprepared. And would you be honest this morning? As I tried to be honest as I wrote this sermon, if we're honest, too often our faith is just like the disciples, isn't it? When we're healthy and our needs are provided, our faith is great and it's strong and we're on the mountain. But when life is less favorable, our faith is often small and it gives way to doubt and worry and fear and anxiety. And just like the disciples, when the crisis comes, way too often we find ourselves unprepared. And listen, when our faith shrinks, so does our courage, our patience, our steadfastness, and our hope. We are just like these disciples. And so what does Jesus do? He goes on to say, For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. I love the Bible. I hope you know that. I hope it just exudes out all over this room. I love the Bible. And the Father says to Jesus, if you can, and look what Jesus says to his disciples, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed. Well, what's a mustard seed? Well, kids, if you look at your paper, you got a little picture of a mustard seed there. Miss Gretchen put it on there for you so you can see what it looks like. Yeah, you see it? What is a grain of mustard seed? It's the smallest seed in the Middle East. And if you've been following along in Matthew's gospel, you think, hey, wait a minute, Jesus, you're con contradicting yourself. You rebuked the disciples for having little faith and then you told them to have mustard seed faith which is the smallest seed and they'll move mountains what are you doing well if you go back to Matthew chapter 13 and you study the parable of the mustard seed you'll see that the mustard seed does not represent little faith it represents little faith that grows into great faith and Jesus summarized the parable of the mustard seed in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 32. And this is what he said. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants. And it becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and they make nests in its branches. It grows. Well, you start out with little faith. But then when you're in the midst of the crisis... When you're in the midst of the struggle, when you're in the midst of the turmoil, you exercise that little faith and you depend on Jesus. You depend on him and him alone. And as you're going through the crisis, as you're going through the struggle, and you come out the other side, you find that your little faith increased like mustard seed faith. Well, the disciples failed because their faith never grew. And their faith never grew because the disciples do just what we do. They trusted in themselves. They took their eyes off Jesus. How many times have we healed demons and taken them out of people? How many times have we cleansed? How many times have we forgiven? This is just one more account. This is just one more time. We don't need Jesus. We got this under control. We're all good. 
self-trust, little faith, not mustard seed faith. Mustard seed faith is persistent faith. It's the faith of the widow who continually harassed the judge that Jesus talked about. And the judge finally gave in and gave her what she wanted. And Jesus summarizes it all in Luke chapter 18, verses 5 through 8. And listen to this, and then I'm going to try to apply everything and be finished. Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unjust, unrighteous judge says. And will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he? Will he find faith on the earth when he comes? Will he find mustard seed faith in the people of First Baptist Church wheeling? Will he find mustard seed faith in the elders and deacons of First Baptist Church wheeling? A faith that is growing and trusting. See, mustard seed faith trusts God when there's nothing in the cupboard to eat and there's no money to buy food. Mustard seed faith trusts in God when your health is deteriorating, when your work is in jeopardy, when your reputation is falsely destroyed and your family is struggling. Mustard seed faith trusts in God while the storm is still howling and persecution continues. That's mustard seed faith. Faith that continues to depend continues to rely, continues to trust. And Jesus says in the text, if you'll have that kind of faith, you'll move mountains. Now listen to me. You've been taught all kinds of crazy stuff about this phrase. He's not talking about literally, physically moving a mountain. He goes on and he says, and nothing will be impossible for you. What is he talking about? I can do anything I want to and God has to do my request? Well, that's what a lot of people think and that's what a lot of people teach. That's not what Jesus was saying. Jesus was saying, if you have mustard seed faith and you are desiring to do my will, no matter what obstacle, no matter what trial, no matter what struggle will be in your way, nothing will be impossible for you. Because you're doing my will. And when you do my will, you have my power. That's it. That's the point. Little faith that grows into mustard seed faith. And in your Bible, you have a little footnote down there in verse 21. Where Jesus says, these demons don't come out except through prayer. And that's the root of the disciples' whole problem, friends. They stopped trusting in Jesus, and they didn't pray. Because prayer is a picture of trust and dependence upon Jesus. And that's the root of the problem. Why did they fail? They trusted in themselves. They went through the motions. They thought they had it all figured out. 
It was all under their control. And they had no power because they stopped trusting. Little faith believes in yourself. Mustard seed faith believes in Jesus. Now I'm going to make application. I got a bunch of them. So I'm going to make them quickly. Application number one. Some of us have misinterpreted this text. We believe that we can name it and claim it, and God must do our commands and our bidding. And I just want to say to you, friends, if you really believe that, if that's your theology, one question for you. Who in the world do you think you are that you have the ability to command the sovereign God of the universe that gave you life, is holding you, your life, and is keeping you alive this very moment? Who do you think you are? This passage is a needed corrective for you. Your theology needs to change. You bow to the sovereign. The sovereign does not bow to you. Application number two. Some of us have poor theology and that we believe that if we have faith, all of our crisis, all of our difficulties, all of our obstacles, all of our problems should be eliminated from our lives. I'm serving Jesus. I'm loving Jesus. I'm faithful to the church. I read his word. I do this. I do that. I do that. God owes me. I shouldn't have problems. Friends, that's bad theology. It's faulty theology. The Bible teaches you exactly the opposite. That if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are enemy number one of the world. And that in this world, you will have tribulation. You will have problems. You will have suffering. And God uses your trials, your troubles, your problems, your suffering as a vehicle to take you to glory where you will ultimately never suffer again. And so you have a choice. You can suffer now and never suffer later. Or you can have your best life now and suffer for all eternity. It's bad theology. When the trials come, you lean into Jesus. You don't question him. Sovereign over your life. Application number three. The same failure that the disciples experience can afflict every Christian. That's why we have to carefully apply Jesus' teaching. So I'll begin with me. Pastor Darren, when you come to the pulpit each week, are you depending on yourself or are you depending on God? Pastor Darren, when you come to the pulpit, when you go to your study each week, are you going through the motions? Are you checking off the boxes? Are you making everything mechanical? Or are you utterly dependent, bowing down before the Lord Jesus Christ, crying out for mercy? When you come on the platform to serve, to read scripture, to pray, to sing, to lead worship, to do whatever, are you going through the motions? Or are you in dependence upon Christ when you stand before all those beautiful children in the classrooms to teach them the word of God? Who are you dependent on? You or him? When you go to work and deal with all the problems that are before you, do you leave Jesus outside the office or do you bring him in and depend on him to help you do it right? The disciples left him out. They didn't pray. They weren't dependent. When you lead your family, you dependent on Jesus? Or are you doing what you think is best? 
Application number four. How would your service be different if you served God in his strength and not your own? Application number five. Has your relationship with God and your service for God and your worship of God become mechanical? Do you wander off during the prayers? Do you leave your Bible at home? Like, if you're ever going to go to church anywhere and need your Bible, it's going to be here. You're going to need it. You should bring it with you. It's helpful. You just sing and not think about what you're singing. You just check it off your list, see how quick you can get in, how quick you can get out. You're really struggling now because the sermon's overtime. You're really struggling. And, and I, I just want to help you. If you're really struggling about that, you don't struggle when things go over time in other areas of your life. Why are you struggling with it about church? The reason why you're struggling with it about church is because it's become mechanical and it's rote and you've checked your brain and your heart at the door and it doesn't mean anything to you and you leave unchanged every week. How in the world could you leave unchanged when you're confronted by the word of God and the God who spoke everything into existence? It's because it's mechanical, it's rote. You're going through the motions and you're playing games. You're playing games. Last application and I'll stop. Are you a part of the faithless and twisted generation? that doesn't believe. It's corrupt, doing whatever they want to do, thinking it's all going to work out in the end. Are you? Seriously, are you? That statement makes me tremble. Because that generation, that faithless, twisted generation that is deceived and living for themselves and denying God and making excuses and doing whatever they want to do, on the day that Christ returns, listen to me, friends, they will not meet his mercy. They will meet his full wrath. Now is the time for mercy. Today is the day of salvation. On that day, it'll be too late. And so if you're a part of the faithless, twisted generation, would you surrender to Christ this morning? Would you turn from your sin? Would you cast yourself fully in dependence on Christ and what he's done for you on the cross? So that you would be saved, forgiven, be given life in Jesus. Let's pray.